Welcome to the Phil Hayes Show, our weekly remote get-together where we sit down, we talk about Leeds United. I'm Dan Moylan with me from The Athletic. Phil Hay. Hello. And from the square ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And Moscow White as well, Daniel Chapman. Hello. As we mentioned last week, due to the coronavirus crisis, The Athletic have turned over the sponsorship slot here on the podcast to somebody who needs a leg up. And given our 24-hour football manager marathon that we did streaming to raise money for that cause across the last weekend, we are delighted to point you in the direction of the food bank again, the Leeds Fans Food Bank, if you want to lend them a little bit of support. Their fund is going really, really well now. Uh, We helped to contribute to it. You helped to contribute to it as well if you got involved with our stream. If you can spare a few quids at the minute to help those that are really struggling through the crisis, head to the squareball.net forward slash food bank and it will redirect you. Phil's writing and many more great articles can be read in full by subscribing to The Athletic. You can now get access completely free for 90 days by heading to theathletic.com forward slash leadspods. Well, this one, gents, comes to you from my garden. I'm sat in my garden at the minute because it's a lovely Yorkshire evening. How are we all? Very well, thank you. Sounds like a nice evening with you. Well, in Bradford now, the explosions have stopped and the uh, the fire engines have stopped going past. Yeah, it's uh, you know fairly typical uh, typical evening in Bradford. Sounds like you've yeah. got very very um, sociable neighbours as well who are keeping keeping the peace while you're on. Very nice here in Pontefract as well. I think I've managed to get a bit of sunburn on the top of the head today from being sat out in the garden. So, uh, yeah, can't complain too much. Don't have a garden. Not taking part. <laughs> <laughs> There's a crisis on people. Stay indoors. I think you are allowed into your own garden. That is permissible. I don't have one. Well, they, you're fine. You stay indoors then. Leave the rest of us to it. Hey, Phil, so what have we got going on then? Any updates on the uh, situation with regards to football since we spoke last week? Yes, although I will just say um, credit to you all for the, the food bank raising over the weekend and the, the 24-hour football manager, which was absolutely epic. Can I, can I just check that Moscow is actually the real Moscow? It's not like one of those films where somebody's died and you have to um, you have to get CGI of their of them and, and also their voice in order to complete the film. This is actually him. It it is really me. Yeah, I'm I'm fine. I'm recovered. It was a long twenty four hours, although it did fly by. But no, I'm I'm all right now. Nietzsche never killed anybody anyway. Have you ever had a man at nine in the morning drunk yelling? Why have you never asked Pablo Hernandez about his two fringes before? Not since he left Edinburgh, and never about um, Pablo Hernandez. But there's there's a first time for everything, and and I think the next um, the next protocol is going to have to be fundraising for Moscow to get a garden. No, poor lad. <laughs> I thought you were going to say for two fringes. Well, that as well. How does he do it? It's a valid question. Why does he have two fringes? That will, of course, be my next question next time I see Pablo in six months, nine months, when whenever it is. To the football, anyway, uh, not not much of a development since last week. Uh, we're still very much in a holding pattern and waiting to see what we're going to do, where we're, where we're going to move. Um, everything seems to be locked at the moment in both the Championship and the Premier League in discussions about wage deferrals, which obviously Leeds have, have already agreed with their players and, and coaching staff and senior management. But other clubs um, across the country and, and at that level seem to be have, having great difficulty in negotiating um, a settlement with any of them or, or any form of, of wage cut or wage deferral, which, which can help in the meantime. And we've got the PFA involved, got the Premier League involved, you've got people sniping from the the, the government end and none of it seems to be making a big difference and you do rather feel that the discussions about how the season is going to continue or how football is going to resume have been lost slightly in the, the argument over who should be deferring what and, and who should be donating money or, or putting money aside in, in the meantime so we're still in a bit of a mess and um, certainly no closer to, to seeing a way in which this is all going to be resolved. One thing we have learned from FIFA is that FIFA are going to commit to the finishing of the 2019-20 season 
come what may. So we should see a resolution to this season anyway. You would think so, but again, the, the timing of this is really difficult and it, it, it they're not in a position yet to be able to say how that will happen or, or when it, it might happen. It was significant that they said that they were going to look to put an agreement in place whereby contracts for players who are out of contract or at the end of the loan deals and, and similarly for coaching staff and managers who are technically free agents would be extended beyond the end of June when the deals would normally expire. So you can tell that from the highest level there is definitely a commitment to getting this season done. But again, little by little, you're seeing developments elsewhere. In, in Scotland, they, they look like they're, they're about to vote to decide on whether the, the bottom three divisions up there will essentially finish as they are um, with the, the SPFL to Premiership to, to follow with a decision further down the line. Um, we've seen in Belgium that things have been called to a halt there. And as time goes on and, and as, as clubs struggle with money and as, as the pressure grows, it, it becomes harder and harder to see exactly how they will resolve this. And, you know, I, I know that the Premier League are talking about the possibility of finishing the season behind closed doors. And I think the reason that they're very open to that is because the, the main concern in that league is the, the broadcast um, revenue that they receive, the, the broadcast contracts that they have to up, uphold and making sure that the money isn't lost as a result of the games being voided or, or not played simply because the sums involved are so vast. But when you get down into the EFL, you find that most of the TV revenue is paid at the start of the season. It's already been received by the clubs and the broadcast implications are, are of no real relevance. And there is a, a kind of growing desperation for games to be completed in front of paying crowds because clubs do need the matchday revenue, they do need the income and TV money um, in that instance is not going to make any difference to them. We have been getting questions in on our WhatsApp number and one of them was about this. If you want to send us one, by the way, head to the squareball.net forward slash WhatsApp that will redirect you, do all the work for you. Leave us a voice memo like Joe has done. We've had a lot of talk about the season being cancelled or continued at a later date or void and all that. But I was just wondering, assuming the season is void, would the club actually pursue legal action against the EFL, the Premier League or anything else? I mean, what is the club's position on what they would do if the season is void? Obviously, we're all hoping it's not, but it is a possibility at the moment. And I was just wondering if Phil could uh, shed any light on that. Cheers. That's one reason why I think there will be great reluctance to void the season because of the inevitable legal action that will follow. Um, it wouldn't only be Leeds. I think West Brom would be in the same boat. You would have questions being asked by the sides who were in the playoff positions in the same way that I think if, if you try to end the season now and to impose promotion relegation on clubs um, without the full season being completed, you would again be subject to challenges and, and legal efforts to overturn that. Again, every, every time I speak to Leeds and every time I speak to people from other clubs, you always get the same message that, that it is essentially that the vast majority of clubs do want the season to finish. They do want to get to 46 games and they do want it to be a completed year um, as opposed to a year which which falls falls short by, by nine fixtures in the case of the Championship. And you know, again, I touched on this a, a couple of podcasts ago, but when we spoke to Matthias Cleek, he, he said himself that he didn't like the idea of getting promoted after 37 games because you always have that lingering feeling in the background that you hadn't earned it properly. You always had the, the lingering feeling that other people would look at you and think that you you hadn't earned it properly. So yeah, I think that I think if, if the season can be completed one way or another, you knock out the, the problem or the, the potential complication of legal issues. People will, will take the, the results as they come. They'll take the final league table as they come on the base 
basis that all 46 games have been played. But if it comes to the point where the season is voided or decisions are made at this stage without any more football, um, then I think it's absolutely inevitable that this will either end up um, in, in court or with, with cast some form of arbitration panel to, to resolve what will be some pretty severe grievances on the part of individual clubs. On to other questions that you've sent in to us now. Then first one comes from Dominic. Hello, lads. Who does Phil think is the best Scottish player to have ever played for Leeds, both historically and also in the time he has covered the club? Thanks. As a proud Scotsman then, Phil, who are the best Scotsmen to have pulled on the white shirts? There's a heck of a lot of choice with this one. And, and even before getting back to the Reevee era, you, you stumble across Gordon Strachan, who, who probably pound for pound has been as influential at Leeds um, in, a, you know, in a concerted period of time as, as anybody at all. And then when you do get back into the Reevee era, you've got Eddie Gray, you've got Peter Lorimer with his, his goal scoring record. But I always kind of go with a view of the players who were around in that era. And most of them, if not all of them, and, and certainly from speaking to Eddie, this is his point of view think that that nobody was more important nobody was more influential and actually very few players were more talented than than Bobby Collins who was almost the the original Billy Bremner and and the first really big icon post John Charles and, and a massively influential part of of the Reeve team when it was developing in the early 60s and I mean a, a player I never never had the chance to watch a player I don't think any of us will have, have had the chance to see a huge amount of but when you read about him his, his kind of technical skill Eddie always talks about the banana shots he used to take with free kicks and just his kind of innate ability on the ball he sounded like a, a player to die for and I mean again even more recently as well I go back to Eddie again because he still reckons that since the relegation in 2004 from the Premier League the best signing and the best player in that entire period up, up until now and, and including players who are in the squad at the moment would be Robert Snodgrass and again I, I find that difficult to disagree with I've posted a couple of goals from Snodgrass on um, Instagram over the past couple of days I've just got in the habit of posting a goal a day and his finishing and his technique is the skill with his feet the speed of his feet is um, is absolutely astonishing and it's a shame that beyond the promotion from League One he wasn't able to do more for Leeds because I do think, and, and I've always felt this, that he's somebody that they could really have built a fine team around. Who's your favourite, Moscow? Eddie Gray is always my favourite in most contexts. Maybe not the the best Scottish player of all time and probably not the best player for Leeds, but injuries cost him a lot of time and uh, a lot of his potential. And some of his best years, I think, came after Clough had gone and he was able to to put some some long seasons together as as Leeds declined around him, and I think that's why I'm so fond of him. Is that he uh, he's been badly treated by Leeds in in many ways. Giving him the job as manager wasn't the the kindest thing to do to him in in either uh, 1982 or 2004. But he never moaned. He's still here, and when you do look at some of the the video of him just flying across the pitch with the barely touching the ball really, but then when he does touch it. He can sw- uh, switch the entire direction of travel and make. He was making as a as a nineteen year old. He he came last into the into Reeve's team. He was the youngest of the the lot of them. And I think that helped him. But he was making much more experienced players that he was playing against look like idiots. And he was brilliant. I mean, for me personally, I'm post Revy, so my favourite Scotsman. It's probably a toss up between God and Strack and, and Gary McAllister. Whereas, as Phil said. Uh, Strachan was transformative in the way that Wilkinson was. The two kind of went um, hand in hand, really, with what happened towards the back end of the 80s to transform Leeds and to take us towards the title. 
But Gary McAllister was just pure quality. If you didn't see him play, he was just out of this world in terms of his, his range of passing and his vision. He was such a, a smooth player. What about you, Michael? I've spoken about Gary McAllister before and how I feel bad about not enjoying him in, enough as a player because I think I was young and he was bald and I just assumed he was an old man when actually when we've watched old games back, like the even the 96 Coca-Cola Cup final where we were dreadful, he stood out a mile in that as being our best player. So I should have appreciated him more. To throw in another one from more recent years, obviously he's not going to be in there with the best ever, but I think Ross McCormack probably deserves a mention as well for pretty much single-handedly keeping us up in the 2013-14 season. I think that season without him in would have been almost certainly relegation. When it comes to the Scottish point of view, Phil, who's kind of held in the highest esteem in Scotland when it comes to Leeds? They speak a lot about Lorimer. They speak a lot about Eddie Gray. And I still think that that tends to be the, the era and the, and the point at which most focus is, is applied to. Again, the, the same goes for Strachan. But more recently, because Leeds have been slightly off the radar, you like the Snodgrass and so on. They, they, they do make waves up north, but not in the same way as guys like Eddie and, and Peter and, and even Bobby Collins were. I mean, when you talk about the careers of Lorimer and, and Gray, you're not just talking about domestic success, you're talking about being some of the best players in Europe and, and of competing in some of the biggest games in Europe. And and I know, I, I get phone calls regularly from journalists up there who still want to get in touch with them to ask about things that went on in the 60s and the 70s because there is still that intrigue. It's the, it's the nostalgic element that people do enjoy and, and that people love to revisit and, and perhaps now more than ever given that there is no sort of active football um, you, you think back to those times more and more but that seems to be where the interest lies in the in the older guard rather than the more modern players. Just to jump on that because I think the one name you certainly by accident left out there was Billy Bremner and when you watch some of the old Scottish games he's a difficult player to, to judge in some ways because what some of his teammates have, have said about him is that just his presence on the pitch was better than anybody else. And it kind of, he had this, this ability to be on a pitch and and that was all he had to do. Whereas a player like Eddie Gray perhaps had to, had to work and you'd see him running back and chasing. But some, something about what Billy Bremner was able to do that, that not many other players had was just have this aura on a football field that suggested he was running, running that game and you had to behave in his vicinity. Yeah, I don't think he often behaved in his own vicinity, certainly away from the, the pitch as well. But again, such a, such a unique player Bremner it's funny because in that era there were so many hard men and there were so many play players who played the game in a hard way and yet Bremner still kind of stands out as, as being unique in the way that he did it and unique as coming out with a reputation as someone who who wasn't just hard but that you, you genuinely didn't mess with and, and because of his size and everything else it makes it all, all the more remarkable and you're absolutely right I mean he fits into the same category as, as Lorimer and Gray and is held in, in exactly the same regards up north and don't forget as well that, that in the period when they were at the peak there was a genuine feeling that when it came to World Cups and so on and, and obviously it never happened because it never does with Scotland but there was a genuine feeling that that squad should actually be doing something at major tournaments that because of how successful some of those players were at Leeds and elsewhere that, that they should be competitive internationally and I think it's a, it's probably the era that stands out as having the most outstanding individual Scottish players and I, and I doubt it'll ever be surpassed Not a Leeds player but I was enjoying recently the tale of Jimmy Johnston being rescued from a 6am fishing trip a couple of days before Scotland went and beat England in the home championship and I think that kind of sums up a, a lot of that team. Absolutely brilliant player. He, he broke Leeds United's hearts in, in 1970 for Celtic. They found him. I think they, they couldn't uh, they couldn't stop him playing against them in the European Cup semi-final. But then, uh, yes, not so good with the, the oars after he'd had 
a bucket load of champagne. No, as as you as you kind of wouldn't be, but I remember one of the Reavy boys saying that it was a real game against um, Jimmy Johnston when um, I think it was Terry Cooper. They they said came off the pitch at half time and and just said, "Who the hell is that?" You know, how am I supposed to play against this guy? And for a team, you know, Reavy's players who were so adept at what they did themselves and were so confident and assured, um, it it tells you how far he could take fullbacks out of their comfort zone. Similar sort of question then. We've received this one via text from Andy, but more in the modern era and a little bit less Scottish biased. If the season was to end today, Phil, who would be your player and young player of the season? I'll start with young player of the season. I assume he counts at the age of 22, but I would have to go for Ben White, who is probably beyond the age where you would consider him to be a, a young player, but he feels very young because of the kind of limited amount of first-team football he's had and because he's never played at Premier League level or, or Championship level before. And I'm struggling to think over the years of many players I've seen who've come into this league cold and, and raw and have coped with it better than him. I, I did think there was a, a bit of a dip over Christmas when the, the pace of it and the intensity of it seemed to get to him slightly, which I guess was was inevitable at some point. But again, I, I think he would be in the running for the, the player of the season, full player of the season award. I don't think he would win it, but I'm struggling to think in the absence of Jamie Shackleton being heavily involved in the absence of Mesley playing more than you know a couple of games, I'm struggling to think of anybody who stands out more than him. And and I do think he falls into the young player of the, of the season category just because of his, his inexperience experience. I've thought a lot about the Player of the Year award and I think two or three months ago or even a month ago I'd have been very tempted to go for Calvin Phillips who won the the YEP's award when I was there last season but more and more I'm swaying towards Stuart Dallas who has played the most minutes of anybody under Bielsa but also has had this kind of extraordinary level of versatility where he's been dropped into various positions and okay I don't think was perfect as a central midfielder but but was pretty much flawless at at right back and with the exception of one half away at QPR in January has been excellent at left back and has pretty much solved the one position that Bielsa just couldn't nail down and and seemed to be constantly flitting between Alioski and Douglas knowing that one was better defensively one was better offensively but neither were the the full package and suddenly you've got Dallas there um, and in the the run-up to the suspension of the season looked completely immovable to the extent that having felt for a long time and, and I still think they need to do this that, that Leeds needed to target a proper out and out left back in the transfer window if, if they got promoted to the Premier League I actually think if it becomes difficult to find one that the scope to work with Dallas there and, and, and to make that his regular position but it's the best he's ever played for Leeds in the period he's been here I think given what's been asked of him Nobody has been more consistent or more impressive. And and if you're basing it on the way that players have improved, and I think that should be part of the consideration. Phillips has been excellent again, but he's been excellent, you know, at, at a slightly higher level, but much in the same mould as he was last season. And the same would go for Liam Cooper. I think the same would go for Matthias Cleek. But in Dallas, you've seen the real steep trajectory. And, and for that reason, he gets my vote. Hard to argue with either of those, to be honest. I think it, I, I'm guessing that Jack Harrison at 23 is a little bit too old to be counted as a young player. I suppose that the, for the main player of the year, Click probably deserves a mention as well, just for the sheer amount of minutes he's put in across this season and last season. I don't think anyone's got close to him, uh, so maybe he's in. He'd be maybe harshly overlooked for it, but he's not had quite the outstanding season that, that some of the others have. Yeah, I like the idea of it going to a, a Click or a Dallas, and it being a a reward for effort rather than just Messi and Ronaldo messing about over who gets to win the Ballon d'Or. I'm sure they work hard, but it's not quite the same. And in Stuart Dallas's case, it's a player who I've certainly looked at over the, the previous seasons and, and wondered a bit 
like what he's really been for. He was supposed to be this this dazzling winger from Brentford, and it it never really took off for him. Whatever he was doing, whereas this season it's it has become hard to imagine a team being being named uh, without him in. I suppose speaking of teams being named with or without you in, I might give uh, Robbie Gotts a shout out for um, Young Player of the Year just for putting up with it. I think Tyler Roberts if he could stay fit, would have been in with the chance of young player of the year as well, because the bits we've seen of him this year, he's been excellent, but he just can't seem to put a run of games together. That's a good shout with Gotts and his, his 35, his run of 35 games um, on the bench. The thing I like as well about Dallas is the thought that in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, people who didn't follow Leeds too closely, people who weren't so aware of what was going on, maybe even younger fans who've come to the club and come to the game after the season, will look back and and not know with any great detail who exactly Dallas was. And I think, um, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but I think it does kind of sum up Bielsa's attitude and, and Bielsa's approach to football, which is that one player who he rates is as important as the next player. And in some cases, the best players in the squad or the most talented players in the squad are not the players who are most fundamental to what he's he's trying to do. And I think Dallas does pretty much sum up the way things have worked for two years under Bielsa and, and the way that things have to work if it's going to go well. Yeah, I tend to agree. I was going to say very similar that it does uh, shine a light on the, the work ethic and the team ethic that's... Um prevalent in Bielsa's method and, and and all credit to Dallas actually I'd go for Dallas as well because I think he's had a great season and particularly when you attach to it as we were saying before the journey that he's come on and the improvement that he's made across the last 12 months has been nothing short of remarkable but you know all credit to Bielsa for that as well. He's also done some fine work around the coronavirus as well I feel like his videos have been have been very much on point. And on to a question now then from Ollie. Hi fellas, it's quite well known that Bielsa cares about his squad, his people, as well as his players. Who out of the current squad has been most impressive when you've been interviewing them as a person? And secondly, without going to Gary Monk, how does the current group compare with groups in years gone by? Cheers. We know they're a great bunch of lads. Uh, Which one is the greatest of that bunch, Phil? You can't fault their effort, they're a great bunch of lads. But they they are... um... There's some good players to interview in it. None, none too spectacular these days, but Hernandez has good tales to tell because he's he's been to places and he's seen things. He has a, a you know a good background at Valencia and Swansea and everything else. Spent time out in the Middle East playing, and there is a, a good tale to tell there. And 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 I always enjoy speaking to him. Underrated as well, I think, is Luke Ayling. He, he doesn't do a huge amount of press because people know he has a, a speech impediment and and he he doesn't put himself up too often. But when he does, he speaks very well. He speaks very lucidly and always gives you very, very good lines. I mean, if I think back over the 15 years I've been doing this, my favourite by a mile was always Saul Bamba because Bamba was the the one person you could rely on at the end of every season when he was here in in the Chilino era to walk out after the last game and to stand, stand and speak to you for 20 minutes about what an absolute shambles the place was and why things needed to change and why everybody needed to get a grip. And I think in all the time that I've been writing about Leeds, he's probably been the most brutally honest when it, it comes to interviews like that. Pontus Janssen was always good for sound bites and would always kind of say what was in his head, which was handy for journalists and, and for news newspapers and neither McCormack or, or Snodgrass were particularly shy when it came to sticking the boot in or, or saying what had to be said but um, I think Bamba was probably out on his own in, in terms of that. One of the topics that's come up that we've been talking about across this season Phil is just how this bunch of players are decent and do, do you think they are a nicer bunch than we've had in years gone by because we have had some spiky characters, footballers can be spiky. 
Yeah, they, they can be. And, and I think what this lot are good at is is taking criticism. It doesn't mean that they're happy with criticism, but I think they're good at taking it and swallowing it and, and just cracking on. And um, I, I did a long interview with Liam Cooper in um, in December, just before Christmas, and we, we spoke at quite great length about, you know, the nickname of League One Liam that had been thrown at him, which, you know, they, I think he knows himself that there are periods when he didn't play well. And, and he said... You know, the, the, the probably were spells where actually League One Liam was about right because I wasn't good enough and I was making mistakes. But it is a fairly derogatory title for somebody who's played a lot of football in this division and actually was captain of a side who should have gone up automatically last season and, and should go up automatically this season. And again, somebody else who's who's improved, but I think was willing to just take what was coming his way and, and to get on with it. And I would say that, you know, I, I was one of the people who rated Pontus Janssen and thought he was a very good player, but there's no question that there was a, a problem there in terms of the relationship between him and Bielsa and I don't think last summer there was much option but for for him to go and, and to join another club and he accepted that Bielsa accepted that both sides have, have said to me that it had to be done and and that was that was necessary to, to kind of keep the peace and, and for Janssen to move on and, and continue elsewhere and I think since he's gone you've, you've been left with a dressing room that is very, very harmonious. And I'm not saying he was a massive disruption in it, but I think you're at the point now where there are no real questions about bad eggs and no real question about disruption. And I think obviously, you know, the, the issue you have to point out is that, you know, the, the racism charge against Casillo, but that is completely different to the, the aspect of how a player behaves in the dressing room and, and what sort of atmosphere they help to create on the training ground. And at the moment and, and throughout this season, I've sensed very little dissent and, and very little disharmony. And as ever, it shows in the results. What sort of detail can you give us about the differences between Bielsa and Janssen? Because there's never really been much meat on the bones there. It's just kind of been the narrative that's emerged. A lot of it came down to the preparation for both seasons that Bielsa has been in charge of. If, if you remember in 2018, Sweden were at the World Cup and, and so was Janssen. Um, and Leeds had essentially said to him, look, at the end of the World Cup, you need a break. So you take... Take the time that you feel you need and come back when you're, you're ready. And in the end, Janssen took three weeks off, which was his prerogative and, and had a breather. But I think Bielsa was hoping that he'd come back sooner than that and that he would throw himself into training and throw himself into the regime at the, the first opportunity. And if you remember when that season got going, you had Berardi and Cooper at centre-back and it took the injury to, to Berardi against Middlesbrough for Janssen to get, a, to get a run in the team. But again, played very well under Bielsa in the stretch that he was in the side. And, you know, his was and is a, a good centre-back. But a similar sort of thing over the, the summer that followed. Again, there were the playoffs, obviously, so there was the late finish to the season. Um, there was international football after that, friendlies after that. And, and Bielsa, again, wanted a fairly early start at Thorpe Arch and didn't want players staying away. And, you know, there was an attempt by Janssen to, to kind of ensure that the, the international players got longer to recuperate, got longer to recover. And I think in the end, it just came to a head where Bielsa wasn't happy. Bielsa wanted him to move on. Janssen realised that 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 was the case and, and the deal was done to send him to, to Brentford. And, and I don't think when I think about fallouts in football, it's nothing like the most major I've seen. It's nothing like the most bitter and twisted that I've seen. But you'll have noticed yourself when Janssen was interviewed recently, he talked about ample number of good things about Bielsa, but also the what he called bad things about him as well. And I suspect without knowing for sure that that probably relates to the, the relationship they had in the end. And, and it was just felt that it was best for all sides that they went their separate ways. And certainly on, on Janssen's part, I, I don't sense that there's any lingering bitterness there or, or any grudge being held. And, and you have to say again, he's done, he's done very well at Brentford and they were equally in very, very promising position when the, the championship season was suspended. Right, we've had detail on the latest Leeds United accounts, Phil, and sometimes at the very mention of these things, people can glaze over because it gets technical, it gets wordy, 
what are the main takeaways that we can take from this? And it, and it is worth stressing as well. These are the 2018 to 19 accounts. So for the previous financial year ending in June, that's correct, isn't it? The end of June. It is June 2019. So you always have to realise that these are very, very close to being a year out of date. Um, you always have to realise that things could have changed in the interim. Some people do glaze over at the accounts. Equally, they can be the source of much fighting and, and angst, mainly because they're, they're always so complex and they're always so complicated and there's a hell of a lot about financial accounts that is difficult to understand and that don't really tell you an awful lot. A lot of numbers, a lot of um, results that require a bit of reading between the line, the lines. Um, just to recap, obviously this covers Bielsa's first season in charge. So it goes from um, the beginning of July in 2018 to the end of June in 2019. So the entirety of, of his first season, if you remember, he came through the door around about the second last week of, of June in 2018. And there was a kind of understanding at Leeds that in order to appoint him they were going to have to pay a much higher salary than they'd been paying to Paul Heckenbottom and not only to him but to his staff his backroom team which was going to be bigger than Heckenbottom's and, and was going to be more expensive but they also realised that they were going to have to push the boat out when it came to general expenditure in the squad and kind of levels of, of ambition uh, and also other costs like the, the changes that they also wanted at Thorp Arch, the running track, the recommissioning of the, the swimming pool, the, the kind of cameras that allowed the staff to do instant an analysis of, of training sessions. So it amounts to a bottom line loss over that 12-month period of £21 million, um, which is up significantly from £4 million in, in the previous financial year. And I think what's quite striking as well is that that overall loss comes from a, an operating loss of £36 million, which is a, a huge amount of money. And, and the reason that it drops to, to £21 million as an overall figure is because Leeds raised around about £50 million through the sale of Ronaldo Vieira to Sampdoria and also from the sale of Jack Clark to Tottenham, which fell just before the end of, of this particular financial year. And that comes despite the fact that turnover is up to very, very close to £50 million. It's at £48.9 which is a record for the Championship and far and away the, the best figure. I've, I've said before that commercially Leeds are a very, very successful club. They know how to pull money in. They know how to maximise the revenue. And and I gather that, that when the results for two 2019-20 are published, the revenue will look more like £60 million rather than, than 48.9. But the simple answer to why the losses are so great is the wage bill. The, the wage bill has risen from £31 million um, in 2017-18 to £46 million 2018-19. Now that covers the entire club that's not just related to to players and and coaching staff or senior management but the players and coaching staff and senior management will make up a huge percentage of that and a 50 million pound increase in the wages that are being paid out tells you everything you need to know and explains in part why it is that that Leeds have been far more competitive under Bielsa while they why they've been able to be you know a top 2 stroke top 6 club but it also tells you other things as, for example, why recently there was a wage deferral when the coronavirus shutdown came around, because Leeds are paying out around about £4 million a month in wages and, and quite simply without any income and, and match day revenue, they can't afford to finance that. And I think it also tells you why it is that we've heard a lot from Ellen Road about profit and sustainability, the championship's financial fair play model, and why it is that Leeds have banged the drum repeatedly to say that they are on the line with this and, and they're very much up against the wall. And I think when you look through the figures and you see that, that Rad Razani is in this financial year has lent the club £17 million, um, net borrowing of £17 million to, to help cut the losses, you realise how much money is going in, how much money is, is going out, and, and you realise actually what a difficult business it is to run. The takeaway figure from this is related to wages, as you just said. So for every pound that comes into the club, 94 pence of that pound, 94% 
is going on wages, which remarkably is quite good for the championship, which does go to show the mad state that football is in financially, particularly the championship. Well, you remember the period with Bates and, and that kind of era when the club were floating at far closer to 50% than, than 100%. And certainly if I think back then, there did seem to be an attitude on the part uh, the part of a, a lot of clubs that they shouldn't be letting the wage bill stray towards 100%. And I mean, common sense tells you that, that they shouldn't. But at the same time, I, I always remember when Adam Pearson was um, was at Ellen Road with Massimo Cellino and Leeds were operating with a, a wage bill of around about £30 million. And that, that was in terms of the playing budget as opposed to the whole club and at the time Pearson said quite openly you're not going to get promoted on that barring something remarkable happening as it did with with Huddersfield for example you know more often than not that is going to get you a mid-table finish and these days even when you climb up to 20 25 it's not necessarily enough to be properly competitive and and to go at at the top two it's not to say that you don't have anomalies and it's not to say that that some don't don't buck the trend from time to time but more often than not it's a fact that the clubs who invest will will be will be stronger and, and will last the pace slightly better so there was a deliberate attempt to pay more in wages to sign better players to make players happier and, and, and everything else and you would say that it you know it, it, if you're being fair in, in the judgment of it it has worked I mean Leeds have gone from being mid-table to being in many people's eyes the best side in the league last season okay the, the table didn't show it and again this season to be more competitive than than anybody in it including a, a Fulham side who've got the most expensive player in the league in, in Mitrovic up front. So they have gambled and, and they have gone for it. And I think they had to because it, it made absolutely no sense to have a head coach in Bielsa who was working with a budget that wasn't going to give him a chance. But if you're being objective and, and taking a step back, you have to say that it's not an ideal position to be in, to be losing sums of money like that. And as ever with clubs in that position for as long as your shareholders and your and your owner you know in, in this case Andrea Radrazani being the, the majority shareholder as long as he is willing to put up money and to cover the losses with loans or with equity exchanges then there isn't a problem but when that money dries up as for example it did with somebody like GFH a long time ago then then you have a problem. Michael how do you view Andrea Radrazani now as a fan we have more information more data here to crunch what does it make you think of him? I mean, I've always thought he's doing all right. This, everything we see, even aside from the accounts, the stuff we've seen this week about the way the club have prepared pop- properly for the coronavirus and everything, getting the exercise equipment to the players and things, it strikes me that we are now a fairly well-run club and the increase in commercial revenues and all, everything like that, it, it does all point to the fact we're doing everything we can. What it also shows is that you can do everything you can and the system is essentially broken. I mean, I saw the, I can't recall the exact figures on it today, but I saw the table of the whole championship of wages over income. And we were somewhere, I think we were kind of lower mid-table in it. I think Reading was spending, was it like 220% of their income on, on salaries? So it's, it's a broken system. So I think he's probably doing about as well as he can without risking points deductions or extinction. Moscow, when it comes to the TV deal, do you think that's at the core of this? Because we were on telly loads last season and we've ended up getting 1.4 million quid from it. Yeah, it's um, it's £100,000 per home game in um, in the Championship. And as I learned from reading Phil's article on The Athletic Today, you get £1.6 million per home game uh, in the Premier League, which is more than the total that we made in all of last season for all the times we were on TV. And there was... Um, a bit of suspicion as well about the the season that we were during that uh, before it got suspended for the coronavirus that although we were on television an awful lot as usual an awful lot of those games were away and it was almost as if perhaps because of the 
the songs that some of our fans sing, Sky were deliberately scheduling us to be on television for games that would bring us the least financial reward. And um, it is a, a broken system, as as Michael says, and a lot of it is to do with that disparity of of television income between the, the Premier League and and the Championship and. And that's what every every club in the division is is doing what they're doing for the reason Reading have such high wages and Derby are, are in um, financial trouble, losing forty seven million pounds on a one hundred and sixty one percent wage to income ratio is all just because if you get into the Premier League, then you become so awash with cash um, that all your problems are solved, even if you get relegated again, which is one of the the, the ways that the championships become so artificially inflated, you're not only competing against the other teams trying to get out of the championship, you're competing against teams who've retained through their parachute payments, not only Premier League budgets with the money that they're allowed to, to keep, but more generous FFP allowances to make everything easier for them and much, much, much harder for us. The, the biggest problem Leeds have is that we haven't been in the Premier League once uh, since 2004, whereas if we just managed to get up there, even just for a little bit of a taste, it would have changed the financial picture of the club immeasurably. That financial deal, Phil, it's one of the things that ultimately meant Sean Harvey left his job at the um, as a CEO of the Football League, wasn't it? They weren't the clubs weren't happy with that deal. No, particularly the bigger clubs and and the clubs who felt that they were driving the most interest in championship football. So Leeds obviously being a clear option, but others as well, like like Derby and so on, and and your Aston Villas who who do bring in big audiences. And I mean, it was interesting, Moscow, touching on there about the number of away games that Leeds have. I, I don't know if this is the case um, in the contract, whether or not Sky are actually limited to the number of games, home games they can show for a specific club. I know for a long time in Scotland, that was the case. They were only allowed to show X number of games of Rangers at Ibrox or Celtic at Celtic Park. So obviously the the, the way around that was simply to show them away from home every every second weekend and, and round you go. And there's no doubt at all that there have been periods where it has just been a case of turn to leads for great audience figures, regardless of who they're playing or, or what the, the state of play is. I mean, Leeds Forest seem to be a pick on New Year's Day and for some reason those clubs seem to play on New Year's Day constantly. I know geographically close, but it was amazing how many times we've been to the city ground and... I remember a season very recently when it was Leeds in 16th, Forest in 17th, and that was the New Year's Day game. And and you think, well, it is just for the numbers and it is just for the the viewing figures. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the the 1.5 million that they pulled in for TV rights pretty much sums up one of the major problems. That the disparity is is so huge. And and I do kind of feel that the even parachute payments are not what they seem because clubs who come down from the Premier League get drawn into hiking their wage bills up to such a level that a huge amount of parachute payments, and there's obviously some exceptions, but a huge number of clubs with parachute payments find that that money just gets wasted and burned, sorting out the legacies of having been in the Premier League and paying the sort of money that, that they expect to pay. And you would like to think that to some degree, this shutdown and the, the kind of realignment of so many things because of the coronavirus will mean that we'll have a different structure and, and a change to, to the way that football operates. But if I'm being brutally honest, I can't see it because I think once things go back to normal and once clubs start to compete in the same way that they did before, self-interest kicks in again and and ambition kicks in again and and people spend what they think they can afford to spend and and have a go at getting out of the league. So I'm I'm there to be surprised and it would be nice to think that we'll see a shift into the sands, but I'm not convinced that that'll happen. 
And when you go back to the accounts, a couple of other takeaways from it. GFH debt is going slowly and uh, slowly but surely. And promotion is going to cost us 20 million quid in contingencies such as transfer fees and bonuses uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I wouldn't pay too much heed to the, the cost of bonuses and so on. Don't get me wrong, it, it has to be paid. But at every club across the country and at every club that are competing for promotion uh, from the championship, there will be promotion bonuses factored into the clauses of players and senior management and um, and coaching staff as well. Um, I mean, I know that when Newcastle went up under Rafa Benitez um, in 2017, there were the pay rises across the board, which applied to absolutely everybody, I think about 30% in total. So you're always going to have to pay it. It kind of doesn't come for free in the sense that you, you will always have promised things, incentivised contracts for, for that to happen. And, and likewise, most transfer deals have add-ons included for promotion, appearances, England caps that that sort of thing so that will have to be dealt with I think the way you look at it is to say that when you go up the income that you receive is transformed so spectacularly that unless you really have no clue and unless you're really really ill prepared you should be able to manage a lot of that certainly in season one and that GFH angle as well one of the things that you flagged up that appears to be disappearing slowly but surely it is. When Radrazani first bought the club outright, uh, we were told at the time that he'd paid a, a pretty hefty chunk off that bill. And, and certainly from looking at what's left, that would seem to be correct. It's down now to just over four million pounds. And it's, you know, it's left over from their their kind of turbulent time as, as owner and, and is a legacy of the fact that Chilino took that on when he agreed the sale of the club. We 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 spoke about this actually in the last podcast when we were getting into Mad Friday, the fact that, that GFH had somehow managed to draw him into a share purchase agreement which was totally in their favour and, and left him with all the liabilities. It was never clear in the end how much GFH were actually due to be paid because Chilino did his best to chop it down. I think Radrazani again tried to renegotiate the amount that was owed. But as it stands, it, it will be paid off at some point between now and 2029. And at the rate it's gone down between 2018 and 2019, I suspect it will be long gone before then. But it is pretty incredible to think that six years on, you're still paying money to a Bahraini bank that literally, as far as I could tell, contributed absolutely nothing to the club. Just on that sort of subject and not uh, wishing to directly link them but a couple of the things that are in this these accounts show the uh the debts owed to ASA group aka Andrea Ratrizzani for the the money that he's essentially been putting in to keep the club going which they they assure um in the accounts that, that none of that money is going to be paid out back to him but then also the the rent on Elland Road which was said to be at first 33 month um rent free period from 2017 when it was and it's showing as a there is an amount in there three million pound rent accrued that he's not taking but there, there is an implication there that at some point in the future whether it's on promotion when we have the the money for it or as a condition of a sale if if Radritzani should decide to sell that there are those figures in there that have the potential if Radritzani turns out to be crueler than he usually appears to cost the club in the future if he suddenly decides Actually, I do want the, the rent money for, for Ellen Road now. I don't feel like anything we've seen with his mistakes necessarily says that's likely, but then I also can't decide if that's me just being hopelessly naive. 
Well, I think history tells you to be sceptical of owners generally. And and I also always think that football fans should start from the point of being sceptical about club owners rather than being being 100% trusting of them. The stadium issue that you raised is a good one to discuss because the, the situation as it is, is that Ellen Road is still technically in private hands in the sense that it's owned by um, Greenfield Investment, which is a, a Radrazani firm, rather than being owned by the club itself. The, the difference is that as a result of him buying the stadium back from Jacob Adler who, who bought it from Leeds back in 2004 there's no longer an annual lease on it uh, annual rent um, to be paid on it and Leeds were given a, a 33 month rent free period I think in the hope that they would have been promoted by them but from asking about it today I, I was told that there is no plan at any stage for Radrazani to take rent for as long as Leeds are in the championship and actually no plan either for him to take rent for as long as he is putting money into the club via loans or, or equity exchanges because it, it literally makes no sense if he if he's going to do that he might as well just loan less money to the club it, it, it is just a roundabout in which his money's coming in and then some, some is coming out and there would be very little logic to it. I think further down the line, if Leeds were to get into the Premier League and to become particularly successful and to be profitable and, and everything else, then it's possible that, that he might start taking rent payments. And the, the £3 million that's in there, from what I'm told, is is an accounting trick more than anything and, and is there for accounting reasons. He hasn't actually received a penny, but in a similar sort of way to transfer fees and the way that clubs amortise them over the length of a player's contract, I think rent payments in the accounts are being amortised over the period that Leeds are to have this lease for so up to 2032 so it isn't real money in the sense that it's being paid but it's real money in the sense that in a technical sense it it was owed it's just that Leeds are in a a rent-free period and you're right I mean further down the line things like his ownership of the stadium and things like the money that has been loaned by Acer any liabilities that are due to him are going to influence any takeover any sale of shares um, any any buyout by a, a third party or a buyout, say, for example, by the 49ers. But again, I think if you look at most clubs, almost all of them will have you know potential complications or, or issues in that sense, because generally outside of the Premier League, a lot of owners are um, lending money to the clubs. They are putting money in by way of loans or they are taking on more shares or, or in you know, in the case of Derby, for example, others who, who have bought the, the stadium. Um, so, yeah, it, it could make it complicated. But I think all in all, when it comes to the point of selling the club, it, it will still be sold as one big package in which Ellen Road will probably feature. Let's get you some quality beer in your life. Beer 52 have travelled the world to hunt down the finest beers from the very best craft breweries. And right now you can quench your thirst with eight meticulously chosen craft beers. Get to beer52.com forward slash Phil and pay the postage of 4 And as a listener to the Phil Hayes Show, you'll get two extra free beers sent to you. Beer 52 are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. And the beauty is you can leave any time. You're totally in control. And when you open your case, you will also find the award-winning magazine Ferment that is about craft beer and will tell you all about the beers that you've received. You will also get a beer-friendly snack in there as well. Head to beer52.com forward slash Phil to get your eight free beers and right now as a listener to the Phil Hayes show you'll get two extra free beers so you get ten in total beer52.com forward slash Phil part three of the show and we've been turning this one over to you via Phil's Twitter account three options to pick from each week and this week's three were number one the recruitment of Marcelo Bielsa number two the selling of Alan Smith and number three the signing of Jermaine Beckford and in reverse order then Phil eight and a half thousand votes were cast we had Jermaine Beckford on just under nine percent selling Alan Smith on just over 28 and recruitment of Bielsa the winner on 63 percent so thank you if you voted tell us about Bielsa then Phil 
Just before I do, do you, do you think it's symptomatic of the age group of our listeners or do you think it's symptomatic of Bielsa's impact that there, were, there weren't more votes for Alan Smith? I thought that one might walk this poll, but not in the end. I think people just miss Bielsa and want to hear more about him. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I think his impact has been so great that people just absolutely love him. I know I do, and I don't ever want him to leave. Well, Alan Smith will be one for another day, and as we always say, we we might have weeks um, ahead of us. Bielsa, the story of Bielsa goes back and, and probably starts with the, the appointment of Heckenbottom as Thomas Christensen's replacement. And it was funny with Heckenbottom because... Leeds were on to that one so quickly. If you remember, um, Christensen suffered that 4-1 defeat against Cardiff, his his last game. But then took training on the Sunday afternoon the following day. This was early February um, and was still there until kind of mid-afternoon, early evening when Leeds decided to sack him and, and announced that, that he had gone. And, and literally by lunchtime the following day, they'd... Um, made an approach to Barnsley. They've made it clear that they were going to go for Heckingbottom. They had dabbled slightly with Marco Silver, and it it was put around you know in, in certain places that Silver might be an option. But I don't think at that stage Marco Silver was interested. I don't think that ever really got off the ground. And everybody now tends to look at Heckingbottom as a as a cheap appointment, and he certainly was cheap in in comparison to Bielsa. You were talking a kind of annual salary of more like three hundred, four hundred thousand pounds rather than the the millions that Bielsa is on. But at the same time. Heckenbottom had just signed a, a new contract at Barnsley with a, a buyout clause of five hundred thousand pounds, which Leeds did pay to um, to take him out of that and, and to bring him to Ellen Road. And you would assume that between the the money that was paid to Mali was in the job and, and compensation and everything else, that that probably set the club back in the region of of a million pounds for a guy who literally took charge of 16 games and kind of felt to everybody like he was on the way out from mid-March onwards. I think certainly from those two games against Wolves and, and Middlesbrough, which were lost pretty abjectly. And, and and then newspaper reports suggesting it's kind of early April time that he was going to be sacked and literally no support coming you know, for him from the club. Nobody speaking publicly to clarify what was going on with him. Nobody coming out to say, no, no, he's, he's got a contract. We will stick with him. And uh, which meant that you, you kind of knew deep down that it was likely that Heckenbottom was going to go and, and they would move elsewhere. But what I wouldn't have said at that stage and what I don't think anybody would have predicted was that the option they would have come up with and the option they would have somehow pulled off was Bielsa. Well, I remember finding out about it and it absolutely blowing my socks off. Like you say, it's night and day in terms of reputation and quality, you would say. But Heckingbottom never made any sense to me at all. Um, but he just seemed to be the latest in in a longish line of hit and hopes under under Orta and more recently Radrizani as well. So how did it happen then, Phil? How did we get the great man? Well, he, he, he was well thought of as a coach, Heckingbottom, but I think he came in with the, the problem of having made a few choice comments about Leeds, which I think when you looked at them soberly were, were not actually that bad, but were easy to use against him. And then the problem that he was a, a Barnsley boy, um, he, he didn't look like a fit for a club with ambition particularly. And when the results and the performances were mixed, support for him just kind of dwindled away to the point where I don't think anybody was seriously disappointed that, that he got got replaced and it, it was evident that Leeds were looking at replacements and, and talking to replacements quite a while before Heckingbottom was actually removed from the job and the first person who tipped me off about Bielsa was um, a journalist called Mark Ogden who works over at, at ESPN and, and he, he sent me a DM on Twitter midway through May saying look this sounds totally implausible and, and I can't imagine this is true because he was on about 8 million euros a year at Lille um, he's got this reputation for, for being a bit of a lunatic and you know I, I just can't see how it would fit and why he'd want to come and do it. He doesn't speak any English. But 
I'm hearing that, that Leeds are interested in Marcelo Bielsa and, and for the next week or so we tried to stand that up but we couldn't get anybody to say that that, that was definitely the case and, and in Argentina nobody seemed to be 100% clear about what was going on but in the background Alter had made contact with him really after a, a kind of throwaway conversation with Radrazani in the back of a car they were they were driving driving together and Radrazani said to him who would be your preferred choice if you could get anybody and Alter said I would go for Bielsa I would go for Marcelo Bielsa but I don't think it's realistic um, I don't think he'd want to come I'm not even sure that we can afford him and Radrazani's only suggestion was that they had a go they got in touch and, and they waited to see what, what would happen whether or not Bielsa would even get back to them whether they could kind of tempt him into discussions and, and whether actually if they did manage to get him round the table whether they could get far enough down the line to, to actually appoint him um, and Otter and Kinnear Radrazani met with them Bielsa Otter and Kinnear um, flew over to Buenos Aires um, to meet him in the the, in the Argentinian capital and, and spent an entire day with him literally morning to night chatting over everything discussing what might happen and more than anything speaking about players and um, infrastructure and, and changes that would be, need to be made how Bielsa would manage the team what his thoughts were on the championship they were trying to dig into how much he actually knew about the league because they, they had made contact with Claudio Ranieri which again I think was an unrealistic um, idea and I don't think Ranieri was, was ever interested but they found that Ranieri knew you little um, next to to nothing really about the squad at Leeds about the players he would be inheriting and I think the feeling at Leeds was that they weren't going to be able to appoint Bielsa at the cost of his salary and the salary of his staff while at the same time completely overhauling the squad um, at Elland Road and it was a huge bonus to them when they got over to Buenos Aires to find that he was saying look I think there's a core of 13, 14, 15 players here who I can genuinely work with and, and who I want you to to keep and he knew about Thorpe Arch he'd managed to get blueprints to the training ground so he was able to to map out properly the changes that he was he was going to want to make and what they what they they say constantly to the people who were involved in these discussions was that they very rarely focused on money it had to be discussed and it was pretty clear how much he wanted to pay and, and who he would want to bring with him and there was literally kind of no room for huge amounts of negotiation in that it, they, they were his terms and it was a case of if you want me these guys need to come but the reason it took so long and, and several weeks to get a contract done was because the only thing he would get in touch about was the football about the players that were staying about the changes he wanted at Thorpe Arch about potential transfers and, and everything else and when it actually came to brass tacks and, and the cash he was going to be paid and the, the kind of contract itself getting it signed off and, and getting it finalised between him and his brother who kind of acted as, as a member of parliament in Argentina very high up and, and these days um, as the, the Argentinian ambassador to Chile getting them to the point of actually signing it and faxing it over and getting it all confirmed was really really difficult but in the end one Thursday night it was signed it came through um, and Bielsa was done Have we had any indication from the, the likes of Radrazani or maybe even Kinnear or Orta as to what their reaction was when they found out that it was like getting the green light? I think they were amazed. I, th I think they were delighted, obviously. And, and I think once they got into conversations, they, they realised that actually they'd gone about it in the right way and, and they were going after him for the right reasons. But I don't think any of them expected him to say yes. And I don't think any of them expected that it would necessarily get much further than, than a phone call. And, and obviously they were juggling this while at the same time having to work out what to do with Heckenbottom. I mean, it's not, not a secret that part of the reason that, that Heckenbottom's sacking was delayed until until May had finished and, and Leeds got into June, it was done on June the 1st, was because it, it 
cost less for the club to sever the deal at that stage than it would have done had they severed it earlier. But in the meantime, you had Heckenbottom over in in Greece uh, on holiday. He'd had discussions with the club at the end of the season in May and had obviously gone to Myanmar, but they'd made virtually no progress with the discussions about transfer targets and who they might go for, which of Heckenbottom's preferred players they were they were really interested in. And I think he could see the writing on the wall and he could see the way the wind was blowing and the fact that he, he wasn't being supported to a great deal. But Otta actually flew out to Greece to see him, to, to say to him, look, we will be sacking you tomorrow, we will be sorting things out and we will be getting your contract settled in, in the way that, that clubs have to. And actually, again, I, I'm not convinced there's a huge amount of bad blood there. I saw Heckenbottom last season away at Huddersfield and I saw him chatting to Kinnear and chatting to Otta and, and they seemed to be getting on fine. But it was just a feeling at Leeds that they needed to get somebody in with more clout. They needed to get somebody in with a really high profile, somebody who could properly control a dressing room, which had kind of fallen apart under Christensen and, and didn't really repair itself under Heckingbottom. And it was a surprise to them. They, they didn't think that it was likely that Bielsa would want to come and manage in the championship in, in the second division of a country, you know, so far away. They, they thought he would see himself as a, as a Premier League boss. But it, it just so happened, and it was their luck, that they had a project to sell which really appealed to him. They had a club that appealed in, in a lot of ways. They had a fan base that appealed in a lot of ways. And actually, when he sat down and he... he he got to grips with what championship football was like and when he looked at what the, the players in the squad could actually do and what their strengths were, I think he felt very, very confident that he could make a go of it. Do you think now, Michael and Moscow, I'll direct this one to you, that given the more we've learned about Bielsa, the more it makes sense in a way? Because it suits his character perfectly, doesn't it? And I think the, the thing about it is how expensive he is as well. He now all of a sudden looks quite cheap. You would have to say that for all, he's cost the club quite a lot in wages. The amount he's added to the value of our playing squad, the players that were already here, is in the, into the tens of millions now. Whereas Heckingbottom, for his time here, was there a single player under his tutelage who actually improved? You'd have to say no. And if anything, they were probably worth less when he left than when he arrived. So from that point of view, he's been an absolute bargain for us. The fact he doesn't actually seem to care all that much about the money as well just makes him all the better for it because he... He obviously is a, such a high quality coach. He commands a high salary, but also it's nice to know that isn't the main thing he's going for. And I presume if he really wanted to just earn a lot of money, he could go and coach in Qatar or something if that was if that was what he was into. But I think he does genuinely see it as a project. Yeah, there's a, a big part of him that, well, actually, no, it's lots of little parts of him that seem like he was made for Leeds United in in some ways. There's the 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 weird or um, eccentric training methods feel out of Major Frank Buckley's workbook is is kind of his common decency has a, a lot to do with Howard Wilkinson, as does again the the rigor on repetition and um and work rate and fitness. And certainly the 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 players who played under Howard Wilkinson put a lot of their success down to what they were able to do. They would start like rockets and they would end like rockets and other teams just couldn't couldn't stay with them because all they did was run. And then there's the uh the the character, the the kind of the the fatherly attitude that is reminiscent of Don Reevy, as is the spying on the opposition, although it was um it was above board in in the days when um Reevy was sending Morris Lindley or Sid Owen or Les Cocker off to Europe to to watch games and come back with a a dossier. It was um, it was a, above board to an extent, but it was also seen as a little bit against the, the spirit of the the times. It was controversial in its own way. I don't know if Frank Lampard's dad ever got particularly upset about it though. But when you you sort of line all those things up and then and then put what he says about the way he feels about the 
the character of the people that he's encountered in, in Yorkshire. I don't know if he's going to end up like um, Luke Ayling, who was the latest Leeds player to say recently that now he's moved to Yorkshire, he doesn't ever want to live anywhere else. But the the way it has all fitted together just seems like something that was that was meant to be. And then um, we just have to gloss over how often the, the previous names I've mentioned came close to success, but not quite grasping it. Have you got any information about Bielsa's early days, maybe even day one at Thorpe Arch then, Phil, when he when he first took the job? Well, yeah, they, t- they took him up. Um, if you remember, he did the press conference at Ellen Road in, in the afternoon, which was kind of hour and 10 minute drama, which introduced us to what press conferences were going to be like with him. But in the morning, he'd, he'd been up to Thorpe Arch for a good look around. And you get the stories from there of him complaining about the marks on the wall from where somebody had been leaning on on it with the, the shoes as they'd been sitting in a seat and, and him saying, that's the sort of thing that I look at and think people don't respect this place and people don't act act properly. And funnily enough, somebody was telling me, and, and I, I'm pretty sure this is true, that he appeared at Thorpe Arch earlier this week. A similar sort of thing came up and was there with a clipboard, had a, a good wander around the track on his own because obviously everybody's social distancing and they're keeping out of the way, but had a good wander around um, looking at all sorts of you know, the, the grass and the, the facilities and everything else disappeared without saying a word and then lo and behold in no time at all a big list dropped of jobs that needed to be done things that needed to be tidied up paint that needed to be improved or or neatened Um, and it just I think straight away they they got that that real kind of a t- that that stickler attitude in him and and that attention to detail and it wasn't a case of him walking in and, and tearing the players to shreds and and or or anything like that or even big rows and speeches I mean it's very apparent that outside of training and outside of analysis sessions he doesn't have a huge amount to do with them and doesn't have a huge amount of interaction but I think I think straight away Leeds were able to see that what they'd been sold was was what they were getting and and just to go back to what Michael said about the money and the the salary that he's on it gets talked about a lot and he is on very high money but I think a wage like that becomes irrelevant when a manager is successful because it automatically becomes good value on the basis that he's doing what he's supposed to do. I think transfer fees and, and wages are more relevant when people are falling short because you see it as money that's been tossed away and money that's been spent frivolously. And I know for a fact that Leeds think it's been a good investment. It, it certainly feels like it's been a, a good investment. And at £3 million, a year or thereabouts to get out of the championship is is money well spent and you know it, it had to be done they had to push it to that level they they had to pay a lot of money to get him in they had to hike up the wage bill which is why the accounts look as they do but all round I just think that he, he's been he's been the perfect appointment in a lot of ways and, and it will look 100% perfection if Leeds do go up which I hope they do but even if it doesn't and I think you said this previously Dan even if it doesn't I still think you'll look back on this with a, a lot of fond memories about what he did and, and what he tried to do Well there is a question tied to that that I wanted to close this bit on and I will ask it to each of you in turn Michael you go first then in 10 years time how will we look back on Marcelo Bielsa? As the manager who finally got us promoted Moscow? I mean I hope it's that um, as the manager who, I don't know, has he made us better people? I worry sometimes that we don't really listen to the the things he says. The manager who made us feel like we we had become better people. Bill? I think a manager who taught you what it means to actually coach players and to make the best of of what you've you've got. I, I found it interesting. We did a survey earlier this week um, and, and we'll publish the results in a longer written piece about it um, in the next few days. But one of the questions in it was, you know, he's he's on this amount of money a year. Should he be 
you know, is it right that a head coach is the highest paid player at the club and should that always be the case? And a lot of people came back to me and said, well, there's not enough nuance in that because if the head coach is Heckenbottom, no. If the head coach is Bielsa, then yes. But my answer to that would be, well, isn't that the point? That you should always be going for somebody who matches what you're trying to do as a club and going for somebody who has it in them to do what you need them to do. And I think if it if this experiment and this appointment teaches you anything it's it's that if you're sensible and you do think about it properly you get what you pay for and and quite honestly a club with a good head coach have got every chance a club with a poor one have got none do you think Bielsa shows up a lot of other coaches for for essentially just being no more than a product of the the squad that they're given well put it this way how often do you see the line spun about how many transfer windows Solskjaer needs or Frank Lampard needs at Chelsea or or anybody else who is in a slightly difficult period but has just come into the job and and it's kind of inherited what what was already there it's kind of constant at that level and I just can't imagine Bielsa being anything other than appalled at the idea that in order to be successful or in order to make a go of a good squad you need a certain number of players, you need a certain amount of investment, you need a certain number of transfer windows. He's no different to anybody else in that he does need players of a certain standard and he does need players of a, of a certain level to compete properly. But I think, as you've seen with the constant influx of under-23s into the first-team squad and, and plugging the gaps when they need to, he thinks he's got it in him to improve players who are given to him. He doesn't feel the need to constantly go out and plug gaps by signing people. And, and we're in a funny scenario now where for the first time in probably 50 years certainly since relegation you can no longer have the argument in transfer windows about the club penny pinching because if Bielsa says he's happy then you know that deep down he must be happy because he would speak his mind and he would say what he thinks and he would say what he means and you find yourself getting into transfer windows where actually a lot of us on the outside are saying well another centre mid would be useful there isn't really that much cover at centre back and all Bielsa says is you know, we'll take Pervader. Um, Augustine would be great, but he's probably not fit when he comes in. So I'll be playing Bamford for the time being and, and on we go. And I think it does show up other managers in the sense that too many managers obsessed with what they don't have. Um, and he is a, a coach who focuses entirely and works with what he does. And I'm absolutely delighted that we do have him. And looking forward to seeing the results of that survey as well when they're published on The Athletic. You can catch up with all Phil's writing on there. Loads of great articles in full by subscribing to The Athletic with access completely free for 90 days right now by heading to theathletic.com forward slash leads pods. Phil, Michael, Moscow, cheers for this week. We'll speak to you next week. 